This episode of The Fearless Storyteller is brought to you by... Well, this could be sponsored by you. Visit patreon.com forward slash Ethan Freckleton to find the membership option that works for you. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. DJ Butler is a speculative fiction author whose works have been published by Knopf, Wordfire Press, and Bain. While his writing journey arguably started with reading Tolkien at age seven, he's been writing with intention for the past decade He quickly landed an agent to push his first book, but little more than a year later, he was let go and encouraged to try self-publishing. Not only did DJ follow that advice, but he never stopped networking and building his personal brand. Four years after submitting one of his stories to Bain, he got a publishing deal, and he's been steadily writing and getting published ever since. Well, David Butler, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller podcast. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah. And, you know, we had an aborted attempt at this last week. Um, <laughs> so we, we get to pretend we haven't talked about this before. But I wanted to ask you, for people who don't know you, what would you like to share about yourself? Um, this is good. I will share a considerably shorter uh, version uh, than, than last week. Um, so, so I think the reason we're talking is because I'm a novelist. And uh, mm. I'm a friend. Um, and in kind of the same scenes, some of the same scenes as Michael Brent Collings, mm-hmm. uh, is a good friend of mine who I think you've had on recently. Uh, and, uh, so I write, um, after a career of practicing law and, uh, and with, uh, with a lot of corporate training and now other kinds of consulting on the side, what I do is I write fantasy novels. I've written for, uh, mm-hmm. adults. I've written uh, for children and young adults. I've written in the indie space. I've self-published. I've published with small authors. I've also uh, been uh, with big presses. Uh, uh, Bain is my principal publisher at this point, uh, but I've also got a trilogy out with Knopf, which is an imprint of, Ran- of Penguin Random House. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place uh, in terms of what parts of the industry am I in and also what audiences am I writing for? Mm. Um, and what it all tends to be is, uh, what I tend to write is, is, uh, 
<laughs> tend to. I have a brand problem. I mean, I'm increasingly, this is a less valid description of where I write, but still. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a spe it's speculative fiction, uh, various kinds of fantasy, usually with a real close root to the real world. Mm. Uh, so there's some, some tether to reality. Yeah, so let me so let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, so my kid series with Knopf, Knopf is called the the series is called the Extraordinary Journeys of Clockwork Charlie, which is an homage to Jules Verne. Actually, all of Jules Verne's novels were published by the same publisher in a single series called Les Voyages Extraordinaires, mm. uh, Extraordinary Journeys. So, and if you think about the books, right, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and around the world in 80 days. And, and uh, it, it, was, it was a great age of travel literature, and he was the great imaginative author of travel literature. So, uh, but uh, the first book is called The Kidnap Plot, and it starts in London in 1887, uh, except that it is, uh, and, and geographically, London is right. Uh, so Waterloo Station is there, and Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament and Whitechapel are all in the places where they should be. Mm. There are also uh, carriages pulled by zebras, uh, and there are uh, neighborhoods, uh, you know, principally occupied by trolls uh, and by kobolds. Uh, and underneath the underneath the uh, streets, there are kingdoms of pixies. Uh, and it's a story, and the the, the book one uh, revolves around an attempt to kidnap to kidnap uh, Queen Victoria uh, at her seventy fifth uh, anniversary party, the the Jubilee uh, celebration. Um, is is a, you know, in the real world is a big public event for Queen Victoria. And in this story involving elves and trolls and a boy who does not realize he himself is a, is a clockwork creation, mm. uh, ultimately they realize that the kidnap uh, plot they are trying to unravel is ancillary to an attempt to kidnap Queen Victoria. So it's, it's fantasy. It's complete fantasy. And at the same time, um, it is, uh, it is pretty solidly rooted in real-world history and real-world geography. I see that. That does make sense. And so were you living in London at the time you had the idea for the story, or is this afterwards? It's afterwards. I, I, had, I did live in London for five years, uh, or I worked in London for five years. I lived, lived in London for a year, and four years I lived out in the country and rode a train in. Um, and, uh, and so... Uh, and in fact, in fact, um, there is a sequence that takes place in Waterloo Station on Platform 9, which is the platform for the Alton train. And uh, and one of the editors said, you can't use this because the King's Cross Platform 9.5 is Harry Potter. And I said, nonsense. Uh, platform 9 is the Alton Line train. It's the train I rode home for four years. That's a real platform and we're using it. <laughs> um, and so far, J.K. Rowling has not sued me. Uh, so, uh, so, 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 yeah. So, there's some my my experience living in and, and loving England uh, very much is is in that book in that series. But actually, the idea occurred to me some years after. Uh, I mean, I'd been back, who, six or seven years, um, and I had uh, just finished writing my first steampunk novel which is set in Utah in 1859. It's called City of the Saints. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, I, I, I felt I wanted to m- write more steampunk, and and uh, I was trying to sort of figure out what to write, and um, and uh, and had a copy of Pinocchio, a very nicely illustrated. It's an English translation. The original is written by an Italian guy, um, and. Uh, and and my my original thought for the series is hey what if Pinocchio how would you rewrite Pinocchio to be a steampunk action story and I said well Pinocchio would clearly have to be not just designed to be a companion for his maker but actually would have to be something more like a weapon uh, <clears throat> but uh, but not a malevolent weapon he's built to be a secret weapon but he doesn't realize <laughs> uh, and his his maker. Uh, is kidnapped uh, by the secret society, the evil organization from which his maker has escaped. And, uh, and Pinocchio, whose name is Charlie in the series, has to go set out to rescue him. What, what motivated you to start writing? Yeah, I... Because um, obviously you, you have a passion for your, your books and your storytelling. Yeah, uh, I do. Um, so what motivated me is I was seven years old and I was being homeschooled for, for one year. Um, and my parents gave me a copy of the 25th anniversary uh, Silver Jubilee edition of the Lord of the Rings, uh, four book paperback, well, so Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, four volumes paperback uh, with Daryl K. Sweet covers. And I, I read them all in a week. Um, and uh and i was uh, seven maybe i was eight uh but um that's my that's basically my f- single formative experience in reading mm. uh and i have spent um a lot of time trying to sort of recapture the power uh of that experience in in reading uh and then uh and then also uh later in writing i wanted to be a writer from when i was seven years old hmm. um so and then i just uh you know I, I chickened out i did other stuff i got my bachelor's degree and i went and and went to law school instead uh because the jobs are better uh <laughs> than the jobs for fantasy novelist um but i've been very lucky and i've been able to come back around uh to sort of ultimately take a crack at what I thought I would be doing all along. Right. And so you're, you're kind of what would be described as a hybrid author yeah. as far as it goes, right? You've got a foot in traditional publishing and a foot in, in self-publishing. And like, which came first? So I never intended when I set out to uh, be an indie or a hybrid. Uh, I want, I aimed for, uh, big publishing. And so, um, it started in 2010 and I wrote a, I wrote a novel fast and furious 30 days. Bam. Uh, I gave it to my wife and to my friend to read. I was confident they would love it. They came back with the same criticisms that night. I had my first migraine and I lay awake, uh, all night feeling like I was going to vomit and saying, what have I done? Mm. Um, <clears throat> but with my second book, then I wrote another book and, and picked up an agent and uh and uh what he was my agent for a year um ultimately he dumped me there's a 
um, I, I, I pitched to Salt Lake's Comic-Con, FanX it's called now, the fan experience, a panel which we held last year, which was, I think, one of the, which we should have all the time. And, and the panel was uh, horror stories. Uh, what, what, are, what horrible things have happened to you, published writer, in your uh, journey to becoming published? Because I think there are, there are far more than people appreciate as they start out. Uh, yes, and and everyone thinks that that whatever the level of success is right ahead of them is the last one. I, I get there, I get my agent, and I've got it made. Uh, mm -hmm. I get a book deal, and I've got it made. Uh, neither of those things is true. <laughs> I get New York Times publishing, a uh, New York Times bestseller, and I've got it made. None of those things is true. So my agent dumped me after a year. Um, but during, and he was a fairly big, he is a fairly big named agent during that year. At a certain point, we were having you know more conversations. Uh, he he took he took the book out, um, uh, pitched it, uh, didn't sell it, uh, and uh, so then I uh, gave him a different manuscript, and he he like basically took nine months, uh, and and ultimately said I don't have time for you. Um, but the uh, during that nine months, we had a call, and I said, hey, you know. I didn't say it in quite these terms, but I was writing five times faster than he was reading. He'd like mm -hmm. slowly look at things I sent him or look at them a little bit. And then, you know, I don't have time for this. Um, and he said, you know what? You've got capacity. Um, you should just start in self-publishing. Mm. It was actually his suggestion that I put out the first self-published things and got into indie publishing. Do you remember what year that was? Uh, Around? I believe it was December 31, 2011. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's the, exactly, or maybe December 30th. Uh, I can't remember why I wanted to put out the book before the end of the year, but I did. Uh, and it's, yeah, with, within 24 hours, it's like December 30 or 31, 2011. Hmm. And that was the, that was a novella, uh, the first of a series of novellas called Rock Band Fights Evil. And it was designed to be pulpy. I wanted to write fast, action-y kind of stories. Um, so for a while, that was all I had out. Uh, I put out a couple other things kind of in my name. Uh, the novel City of the Saints, uh, a dystopian series uh, called The Booza System. Book one is called Kreshling. Um, and then I had the first, I had the Kidnap Plot, the first book of the extraordinary journeys of Clockwork Charlie. I bought a cover for it. I had art. I was ready to publish that. And, uh, and I got a nibble from an agent. Mm. Uh, and she said, she said uh, I'm interested in representing this. Um, uh, give me, give me 30 days and I'll go out with it. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll wait. Mm. Uh, and she sent it to one editor on a sneak preview basis for a week and the editor bought it and it random house. So, um, so, uh, so I thought my, so I thought I was a made man, right? Like I had, an, mm -hmm. I had and, and my agent and she's still my agent, Deborah Warren, uh, she represents Llama Llama and Pete the cat. So like in kids literature, this is some, some pretty big properties. She, yeah. She, uh, Kwame Alexander, she's his agent. Yeah. I got the, I don't remember the new barrier or whatever he won. Um, so I thought, Oh, this is great. I got a, a big deal. Uh, and it's from random house and, um, and, uh, basically random house's decision was to do zero marketing 
and those books disappeared into the abyss. Mm. Um, and so they exist. You can buy them. They're well-regarded. No one's ever heard of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fell into the black hole of the system. Yeah. yeah. But in, in the meantime, so uh, I'm giving like a rather – a rather uh, involved answer, but I want, I, but I think this is an interesting way to think about like what, it, what how does a hybrid career evolve? What does it look like? So, so in the meantime, the, the book that my second, my first agent had sort of never managed to make time for, mm. which is an epic fantasy novel called Witchy Eye, and it's set. It's an epic fantasy novel, but it's set in 1815 in a fantasy version of North America, in which North America is reimagined as a fantasy empire with an elective emperor like the Holy Roman Empire, okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, uh, he could never make uh, time for it. Um, when he dumped me in February of 2012, I, I emailed, I submitted to every publisher that would let me submit to them directly. And so there were some small publishers uh, and also some, you know, a few of the big fantasy ones will let you submit to Slush without. Mm-hmm. Um, without an agent, and, and I submitted to all those, um, including I submitted to uh, Bain. Uh, now Bain, the publisher, and um, and Head Cheese—I don't know what her title is exactly—but she she calls the shots. Uh, is Tony Weisskopf? Mm. I had met her, so it wasn't just a submit to Slush. I had met her at WorldCon. We we hung out a bit. Um, we were kind of simpatico, and so I I sent her the novel, and she said. She said, this might not be a good fit for us, but I'll take a look hmm. uh, in February of 2012. Uh, well, uh, in February of 2016, just before the kidnap plot was about to come out, my, my, my big press debut, uh, Tony finally responded four years. Uh, and she responded and said, hey, we want, here's an offer. We want this. We want it. Wow. Four want years. It. Four years. So I always laugh. People will, will complain to me, kind of on the side. They'll be, oh, Dave, you're a Bain author. Uh, I've had my book at, in it and for nine months. I haven't got an answer yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I'll just laugh and say, why? 48. 48 months, buddy. Um, and I actually, I don't think I'm the longest. And I don't think Bain is especially bad. It's, this is just big publishing has long lead times for everything, mm. including just reading the submissions. Um, so, but as a result, you know, I got on, I got on the Bain uh, with Bain and I've got now out um, four books from Bain and a fifth one coming out in about a week and a half, actually. Um, and uh, so they, they, uh, you know, Random House um, has not to date shown interest in publishing anything yet from me. We have more things on submission with them. Uh, I'm, 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 I've got things submitted to other big presses now that, you know, Hey, maybe, maybe this week I'll, I'll get more offers. But, but as of now, Bain is, uh, sort of actively publishing my stuff. Uh, and that's great. So that's, uh, mm. it's adult, uh, adult fantasy and science fiction. Um, I also, in the meantime, sort of parlayed my self publishing and my very active, uh, convention going selling and marketing presence into uh getting on board with uh a um it's a it's a large indie 
or maybe maybe you'd call it a medium size indie, a Wordfire Press in Colorado, mm. just owned by Kevin J. Anderson. Right. I was kind of yeah. Oh, you know him. Uh, yeah, I've heard of Wordfire Press, but you know, we can't assume that of every listener. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so um, I, uh, the first thing that I liked about them was they had a really big booth at the cons, and so I. I said, hey, you guys ought to republish some of my self-published stuff. And they read it and said, okay, we will. So things that I had originally self-published are, are now in Wordfire Press editions. And, mm. um, and, uh, and a couple years later, I, uh, when they were looking for an acquisitions editor, I did that piece too. I volunteered and said, listen, I'll be this. You need someone to read the incoming stuff and talk to you about it, Kevin. I will do this uh, uh, you know, basically for free on a volunteer kind of basis. So I did that for probably three years. Hmm. So, uh, so right now I still have, I'm, I don't have anything now that I'm self-publishing. Um, although no, that's, that's still true. I don't have anything I'm self-publishing. Uh, I, um, uh, with, uh, have short stories out with a lot of small publishers, uh, with a wide range and uh and Knopf and Bain as of right now are my two big big uh big publishers I think in the future though I think hybrid publishing is going to become increasingly common mm -hmm. um, yeah I would expect so but why do you think that is well so I think that um increasingly uh uh advances from uh big publishers uh, are just getting smaller. I think mm -hmm. they're putting out, and I don't. I, I'm not sure. I, ha I I have the data to back all of this, but I, but I believe. Apparently, you can look on Twitter right now to see what the advances are for a lot of authors. There, there's some discussion, though. I don't know. That's a very complete data set, but <laughs> uh, but I think the way those publishers tend to work is they've got um, they kind of work like venture capital companies, and. Uh, that is to say that they throw money at 20 writers and they are okay um, if, uh, you know, uh, 15 of them fail as long as, you know, uh, four of them do okay and one of them knocks it out of the park. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think a lot of the, in sci-fi and fantasy, a lot of the knocks it out of the park that these publishers are relying on are old uh ender's game is still a bestseller right uh, constantly right that's a, that book has been out since the 80s uh or they're dead robert jordan is still making a ton of money for tour mm -hmm. uh, um or or they're stymied uh you know george r r martin uh now says oh 2021 maybe the winds of whatever uh or pat rothfuss and so i think i think those big knock it out of the park ones are 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 the new big knock it out of the park ones are not coming along, um, and so I think that uh, I think that means smaller advances. I think most people, when you sell your first fantasy novel, and literary fiction may be different. I don't think it is, but maybe mm -hmm. um, you basically, uh, if the publisher is is performing, is being fiscally prudent. They should only give you an advance that they can expect to earn back, which means if you are an unknown quantity, it should probably be a five thousand or ten thousand dollar advance, and no one's living on that money. Mm -hmm. um, and and I know of a couple of cases, and I'm not going to name names, where uh, 
So the problem is that, you know, indie sales don't necessarily translate into trad pub sales and vice versa. So I know of a couple of cases where indie writers who sold a lot uh, got big six-figure deals from traditional publishers, but then their traditional books don't sell as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because they're playing by traditional publishing rules and they're not, they're not meeting the expectations of the indie genre readers who were reading the people before. And, and the writer doesn't have her hands on all the same controls around, you know, pricing and book bub and this and that. And it's just two different games and hasn't translated. Right. So I think beginning writers should expect that, uh, that they should get smaller and smaller uh, advances. Now, once you've proven yourself, you know, if the, if the, once the editor knows you're going to earn out, that's different. Advances go up. Um, but, but in the meantime, right, if, uh, and similarly, this is sort of the same point seen another way, you're not going to get a 10 book deal. You're going to get like a two book deal. Let's try, let's try you for two books. That's mm. how it goes. Maybe. Right. right. So it sounds like there's a couple different directions you know, people go with, with that in the hybrid world. There's one I could start out and self publish. Yeah. And then you were able to get a publisher word fryer press to republish some of your work, right? Like, I guess they yeah. assumed their rights, the rights for those. Was that easy to do by the way, to kind of um, to move transition those titles that were already self published, like it, were there hiccups that with that? Hard. It's not always clear that's a gain for the writer. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge with indie publishers is, um, so look, tr a traditional publisher offers, uh, is not your employer, right? It's a kind of a joint venture partner. And they say, we're coming to this business and we're gonna provide the following range of services. We're gonna edit, we're gonna put a, co a cover together for you. We're going to put it in our catalog and all of our standard marketing. So it's going to go out to librarians and mm -hmm. right, uh, and to advanced uh, readers. Um, and maybe we'll do extra stuff for you if we're especially excited about this book, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, indie publishers mostly do some subset of that stuff. And um, uh you got to be careful when you're the writer. Make sure you understand what it is they're going to do. Um, you're probably not going to get an advance. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not going to send you on book tours. They probably shouldn't because those don't usually make money. Um, so, uh, so, so for many of those presses, candidly, and for many writers, the writer would probably be better off if she... Uh, hired someone to make a cover for a few hundred bucks, mm -hmm. paid someone a few hundred bucks to do the editing and just put it out herself. Right. And then you can do things like advertise and experiment with all these different market things, marketing tools. I imagine that would be tough, right? Like tempting even. I can imagine if I had a book that I was really attached to or a series that was traditionally published that never really got the push. Like I know I could create an AMS account and create my author central profile or whatever. Yeah. I could advertise the book and stimulate sales, but I'm not going to earn that back because of the way the contract and the royalties work. Right. Right. Uh, right. So even if you could do it, you might go, wow, I'm only getting half or, or whatever the split is. I'm only getting 40%. So the odds of my making a return are smaller. Yeah. Um, 
And then it becomes a lose-lose situation instead of a win-win, right? Yeah. So, so you want to, you want to, don't you want to not be seduced by the idea that ooh, I am published and that's an imprimatur. Because mm-hmm. actually, I think it's it's worked the other way around. People, everyone, everyone on their Twitter feed, you know, says, "Oh, published author, uh, mm-hmm. award-nominated author." It just that's that's just not hard. That's become and so people, you know, find out you're a published author, and they actually just assume that means that you self-published or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that imprimatur is not. It's probably not worth taking an indie publishing deal just for that, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so what has really worked for me with WordFire, at the time I joined them, they, they had the best convention presence. They were going to like 30 co- big comic cons a year selling books. And I had travel resources. I'm a corporate trainer, so mm-hmm. flyer miles and hotel points. And I wanted to travel with them and sell books. So that worked. Um, it also meant I got to, um, uh, I got to uh, uh, build relationships with some pretty big name authors. So if you look at like who blurbed Witchy Eye, right? When it came out in 20, geez, 18, 2017. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got blurbs from R.A. Salvatore and uh, from Dave Farland and from Kevin Anderson, from Mercedes Lackey and from Charles Gannon. Right, and, that's, that's heady, heady yeah. company right there. Is pretty good, and it's a hundred percent because I was able, and I and I know those, and I know those guys, you know. So, so there were some some real uh, intangibles. Wordfire has never, Wordfire is you know always trying to sort of shake a leg and and, and make it. And they've got some big sellers, but usually they're big sellers because it's uh, because the author is her, herself a big name, someone like mm-hmm. Julie Nye, or they publish Alan Drury's. Um, what is it? It's like a classic novel from the '80s about a Supreme Court uh, nomination. The the something. Anyway, it, it's it's totally out of character. It doesn't fit the rest of their profile. It's it's a it's a, a legal thriller, but it's a it's still a big seller to this day. Mm. Um, but I got a lot of other things out of it, and so I still have books with them. And by the way, they also have. I could pull my books from Wordfire at any minute if I wanted to. They've got. I have Kevin's always been very, very fair and good in dealing with me and the contract lets me just walk away. That's great. Um, So you don't know, you don't have like a buyback clause like you might with say the, you know, the clockwork Charlie stuff. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a buyback clause during the first hmm, two years or something. But then after that, if you just want it back, you can have it back. And I, and I know several guys who wanted their rights back before the clause was up, and Kevin just let him have it anyway. I think Kevin mm-hmm. Kevin um, is wise enough to want to be, you know, he's a repeat player and to want people to think well of him. And yeah. I think also in his heart is a good guy. And so, um, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, so for a lot, I didn't, and I know a lot of indies, um, so yeah, so one way to go is to do that to get an indie publisher, right? Uh, and the other way is to do it yourself because it turns out all those all those services that a publisher offers, either you can figure out how to do it yourself with an investment of time, mm-hmm. if you trust your own graphic design sensibilities and your right. own editing abilities, right? Right. Um, or you can buy it, and you can buy it. Uh, you got to be careful 
um, <laughs> there are uh, there are a lot of people out there. That, like so, in in the gold rush in eighteen forty nine in California, mm-hmm. uh, most of the miners made no money. Who made money was people selling supplies to the miners. Right. Right. This I'm gonna this yeah you could that's, buy these blue jeans for forty five cents down in town, but here I'll sell them to you for twenty bucks. Sure, that's not unusual in any market, is it? Yeah, and so you gotta be you gotta be careful. Uh, take your time. Don't immediately sign any dotted lines, but you can get some good uh, editing uh, services, layout services, um, uh, and even great services sometimes, pretty affordably. Mm-hmm. So. Like on a more personal note, it sounds like your your number one goal has always been to hit the trad pub, but you have a fallback where you can still take action and move forward if the story doesn't sell. Is that yeah. uh, right? And it is fair, although although it's worth noting, right, that when I took Witchy Eye and submitted to publishers in February of 2012, Bain was held out for Bain, but I got other offers mm-hmm. that I said no to. Mm. And, they, and they were from presses that I would have re- regarded as fallback offers that said, Hey, if you, if you rewrite it as YA, we'll publish it. Or if you break it up into three books, we'll publish it. And I said, Oh, that's so nice. Mm. I'm going to pass. Um, and did you feel comfortable doing that? Why was that? Was it because you're still writing other stuff and not waiting for acceptance or how did I did not feel comfortable doing it. I, I think I think in hindsight, it's easy to say something like, oh, the moral is hold out for your dream. Right. Um, and that is not the moral. Uh, the moral is that I got lucky and I could just as easily have not gotten lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I felt uncomfortable doing it. And I wondered if I'd done the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I think the reason I was able to do it is because uh, I was moving forward in other ways. Um, because I, 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 I did again, get a, uh, uh, an agent and, and, you know, kids, uh, a middle grade deal. Yeah. So you had some other encouragement and irons in the fire and those things. It sounds like, you know, one, one thing I keep noticing come up is your wins seem to come out of in-person networking and connections you've made. Oh, that is so true. Um, and there, and there are morals here. There, actually, there's some important morals here. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yes, in, in my life, uh, who I know has been um, has been very, very important, and, mm-hmm. and not just who I know, but how they view me, and and, and so it matters. Um, that I not just have relationships, but I have, that I have relationships that are, that are healthy relationships, relationship where, uh, you know, uh, I am helpful to people where I am not seen as being a predator or a parasite. We're going through this thing right now mm-hmm. in sci-fi fantasy horror, where some dozen right. plus authors, right? People are, um, I think appropriately, they're calling out behavior that probably they should have called out before various kinds of uh, inappropriate sexual behavior. Um, You just, some morals, okay? One, as a writer, you have, your books have a brand. Mm -hmm. By the way, you don't necessarily choose that brand. People are just going to, if you write, 
there are consistent things in what you write that are going to be your brand. And people should be, unless you are just writing purely the contract specification of the person employing you, the things you write will be noticeably yours. And that, that's your brand. Mm -hmm. But you have a personal brand too. And it's not just, oh, Dave's the six foot eight guy who wears hats. That is a, that's a thing. People will joke about it. They'll know me at a con from 100 yards away because my head is visible above the crowd and I'm wearing a fedora or a badger on my head or whatever, right? But, but you want your brand at all times to be, um, well, so I, I actually I've got a, a, a series pitch that has reached the very highest level decision makers of a, a national middle grade publisher right now. So if mm. I'm lucky, here's me knocking on wood, I may get an offer for a new series as early as Friday, okay? Mm -hmm. One of the mm. things that the editor said in talking to me is, uh, you know, I've read your stuff and you're a known quantity. And, and what she means is, Dave, I know that you're gonna turn in your books on time and I've seen you interact in social media and you're not a jerk and, and you don't, you try to avoid political fights. You have political feelings. Most of us do, but you're not beating people up over it. Uh, you, uh, you know, I am not worried that you're going to secretly turn out to be, you know, you, know, you never know. Right. But mm -hmm. you're going to secretly turn out to be an abuser or you're grooming your, 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 your mentoring young women while secretly seducing them. Right. Right. Uh, I have a personal brand and, and if I get this book deal, honestly, it's as much about my personal brand and editors being willing to invest in that as in, is in the two page pitch that they are. Mm. Um, right. right. So, and, and in the long game, right. It's, 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 that's the consistent piece, right. It isn't what the work is. It's, it's you yeah. and how you're perceived. And, and yeah. by the way, Readers also, one reason they buy books, readers don't really invest in books, usually. They invest in a writer. People who are real readers want to discover a writer and go, oh, I like this guy. And he mm -hmm. has, oh, and he's got 30 books. I'm going to go read them all. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's like voting, okay? You vote for the guy consistent with your self-image. You tend to buy books from the writer consistent with your self-image. And, and so uh, you just, you want to, you want to be someone people are willing to invest their time and their money in. Mm. And, and, and by the way, we're sort of talking about soul craft here, but by the, by the way, you want to be that person anyway, mm -hmm. <laughs> don't you? In your yeah. life, you want to be the one that you're like, and, and, and kids feel safe around me and my neighbors trust me and people know that I will do what I say. Right. So, um, so that has been hugely important in my career, along with just the fact of actually getting out there and interacting. Right. Um, I think that very, there's very little room for true recluse writers um, anymore. Everybody is much more accessible to each other. And I think it's, it's very difficult. Uh, I think it's very important in building a reading that you'd be accessible to um readers for most right. of them there'll be the exceptions right and so in one way or the other right like it's important to have community and and a network and i notice that you you 
you mentioned on your website that you have a writing group. And, and I was hoping you'd talk about what that's about and why it's important to you or helpful. Yeah, let me talk about that and the broader point of community, which I yeah. think, um, which is which is really great, Ethan. Um, so my writing group is a little bit dormant now. We're still in touch with each other. We share pitches and things, but the uh, only two of us are really writing these days. Um, mm. And uh, so when we started, they were we were all writing a lot. One of us just had his first deal with Simon and Schuster, um, and that was it. Uh, but uh, there were five of us total, and uh, uh, Platt Clark and I both got an agent, and then both got published um, in large part with the help of this writing group because we would critique each other, we would support each other, we got on, we lived geographically dispersed mm -hmm. all over the Western U.S. One of them's in Hawaii now, and uh, so we get on uh, Google Plus Hangouts at the time. And uh, every week, like Wednesday night for three hours or something. And that was, uh, that was a, uh, you got to do some people you trust. Yeah. Will listen to who can say things that you go, oh, that hurts, but I think you're right. Um, and, uh, and that, and that's a, it was a really valuable way to sharpen my craft and also, learn about um learn about uh querying and how to find lists of agents and uh and just all kinds of business mm, right so it's kind of knowledge sharing virtuous circle going on yeah and uh so so that was really important i, I actually am a huge believer in community um and uh okay so 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 i'm going to say some sort of here's some things about me <laughs> uh i am i am really bothered when i feel like people are trying to put me in their downline mm. uh, explain um, that what do you mean by downline so so i live in utah i don't know if you know this about utah but but we are sort of a capital for uh for for uh, pyramid sales structure uh companies like amway like mellow mm. right uh, like yeah. Sentry is is in idaho which is basically utah um, right and uh this is just our culture we love these things uh and and so there are a lot of there are a lot of um writing organizations in utah and every time i interact with them I always feel like people are trying to put me in their downline. Mm. Uh, like there are these, these, these pyramidal structures and at the top of them, there are these two or three writers and everyone, we all go, Ooh, and ah, and they come in the room and we hope to be them someday. And it just bugs the ever living shiz out of me. Yeah. Um, which is probably as much in me, right. As it is in what's actually going on. Sure. So, um, there was a so so I do a couple things besides the the writing group, which is a little dormant now. But but um, so I was uh, I was on the Facebook uh, page, I guess, of one of these local organizations, and a friend of mine named Angie posted and says, "You know, I'm feeling kind of bummed about my uh, about my career. Uh, I'd love to you know have a chat about it with somebody if I could." And within five minutes, five different writers had offered to sell her career consulting services at a by-the-hour charge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> had a career I would envy, 
Like none of them were like, it's not like some New York Times bestselling author saying, let me tell you, I, Brandon Sanderson, will tell you how I did it. No, it's like someone you never heard of going 50 bucks an hour. So um, this got my skin breaking out in hives. <laughs> so I said, I said, Angie, wait, okay, hold on. Before you do any of this, how about if we just get some people together and, and eat and talk? Yeah. And you can, and we can share as peers. So I organized and it's been derailed this year, but I've been running for about three years, an event that I call IHOPCon. <laughs> and once a quarter, I call ahead to an IHOP and I say, I'm going to show up uh, and I'm going to bring something between 20 and 50 writers with me. Um, does this day work? And will you give us 10% off? Mm. Um, and they always say, yes. Um, and so, uh, it is a, it is completely structureless. There's no beginning announcements. There's no theme. No one has a slideshow. You just show up, you sit with whoever you can sit with and you talk about stuff and people will move around seats too. And, uh, it's a completely horizontal, um, uh, the, the only person who is anything at all is that I call, I pick a date and I call a place. Right. And that does not make me in charge. I'm not in charge. I'm just there. Mm. Uh, but, um, people have sold short stories, uh, at those things and they, and they, uh, they find beta readers and they form, uh, writing groups out of them. I think community is hugely important. I think mm. writers often don't know how to get it. I think they that when they go to places where they think there's community, um, they may be getting sold to. They may be getting sold to. That's exactly yeah. the point of those is to sell to them. That's exactly right. Now, yeah. now what you can do, right, is you go there and you go to the event and you look for people who are in your situation, mm. who are also there trying to figure out what do I do, and that and that's who your your allies are. That's not obvious the first time you show up. Yeah, I had to learn that in my own when I was doing songwriting career you know early in the networking you know it took a couple times around to realize no i'm coming for the people that are there back to songwriting that's really awesome i did not know this about you hold on put a pin in that <laughs> let me tell you one other thing though um so so just just an example uh, okay so i i live in this old house okay uh and it's it's big and I have this really large, I mean, it's 6,000 square feet big, okay? But it's old and falling apart. It's, it's a piece of crap house, but it is big. And it has this really huge front room. The guy who built this, okay, actually funny historical uh, trivia here. Uh, if you know the name Stephen R. Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. Uh, this is his house. Ah. Yeah. And he had eight kids. And so they have a really big family room, okay? Yeah. Uh, and again, once a quarter, um, I fill that with folding chairs and, and we get a speaker in here and I make brownies and milk. I don't make milk. I purchase milk. And, uh, and we just invite the whole world to come to my house. Right. And, and so we've had like lectures on Russian history. We've had uh, short story tellings. We had a, a stand-up comic. We've had a couple of musical performances uh we had um i, I don't even remember we've, we've had like 10 or a dozen of those at this point mm. so um just to say uh community is is as important as uh as your craft and as your as your brand 
and anything else. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, I believe you should be active in creating the communities. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes us all richer if you are, but also it means you can help create the kind of communities you think you'd like to have. Yeah. I'm sympathetical with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So hold on. So songwriting, I love songwriting. Uh, tell me about your songwriting. This is interesting. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll preface, you know, we had an aborted attempt at this interview last week. We got about 15 minutes in before Dave lost power. And I do remember that you did bring up uh, an interest in music and that you had yeah. this, this creative arc to you. Um, yeah. about that and i'm glad you you connected and brought that back up because i enjoy talking about the fact that we're not just writers or we don't just have to be writers right we can yeah we're creative people right yeah yeah and it's okay but yeah i uh i i my dad was a bass player and played music professionally and i was always drawn to music and that was kind of my first creative love and first creative go when i finally detached from day jobbing you know i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna learn i like stumbled into the music industry via a conference and learned what it meant to have craft and do business <laughs> and enjoyed a creative explosion at the time and a lot of intentional work and growth and but i now it's gone back to it's 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 my creative play is to do music and it's shifted away from being a goal where I make money from it and that yeah. kind of thing. And uh, there's something that feels good about creating a song. One, it doesn't take that long to make a song. Yep. <laughs> Two, it feels good to play and sing, right? And three, it feels good to sing and play with other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there is a, um, so I think it's, uh, I am glad that I write songs for many reasons. One, one reason is uh, you have to be, you have to have, you have to appreciate form and you have to, uh, you have to get a much more economy of language mm -hmm. than novel does, right? And yeah. you get really carefully about the structure of your sentences, making sure your listener is going to start caring with your first word mm -hmm. and all the way to the last word. Right. Uh, and so I think it's great training for any other kind of writing. Yeah, I think so. It, and it's similar to like, if I suppose if you focused on just making the best possible first 500 words of your story, right? Like, yeah. Except that there is nothing else that comes after that. Just right. right. I think that's right. I think I think screen playwriting has a similar kind of discipline around writing dialogue. It's useful. Mm. Um, but I think uh, I think I think songwriting is wonderful. I think writing jokes must be the same way. Be I think it is, and I've been exploring that, um, following along with uh, Scott Dicker's books. He he founded The Onion back in the eighties. Yeah, some good writing resources for that. So and that's what I'm connecting to. I'm seeing that connection. It's like, yeah, this is just like writing songs with craft, right? The craft of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I put songs in almost all my books. Mm. Uh, songs songs by me. In fact, Witchy Eye. So Tolkien did this. 
Okay, this is, we're going to bring back around to the beginning of the conversation here. Uh, Tolkien <laughs> poems, right? And some yeah. of them like, skipped them. Um, but like he, th- there are recordings in which Tolkien sang some of those poems. He had melodies for them. Hmm. Right? They, were, they were songs you can find online, him singing some of these things. Um, he was a lyricist. And uh, the, uh, you know, Witchy Eye and its sequels is my bid to be, uh, is my bid to be the American Tolkien. So, uh, mm. you know, Tolkien was writing a sort of pre-Christian mythology uh, that at the same time is deeply Catholic of his, of his native land of England. Uh, and, and, and he gave it music. Well, I, I, there is enough music in Witchy Eye, the first book in the series, that I recorded it as a 12 track album. And I give out, uh, dropcards.com has a little download service. So I, I give out cards to people at Cosmo. They can download the whole album. Mm. And I'm way through recording the album for book two. Um, and I always make sure there are extra verses in the recorded version that are not in the book. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. Like this content. Uh, well, so as you're saying, the, the, the audio books just started coming out this year for the series and they didn't ask me, they didn't ask me how to pronounce names. They didn't ask me about melodies. So the, the reader just sort of chants the songs, but they're not chants. They are songs. Yeah. That's fun. You're you're the second person I've interviewed who who you know has made an album or a soundtrack around around the the work the work of fiction itself, which is oh yeah fantastic. I think yeah. I I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. So hey, a final question for you then, like final interview question is. Like, do you have this balance between like creating as as your business focus versus like kind of creative play? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so I uh, my my largest source of income is still a sort of a day job. I'm I'm a contractor. I'm an independent contractor. I'm not an employee, but I'm a corporate trainer. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching a law department last year. Um, and before my kind of four hour session, um, I had to listen to their various things. And they had a panel on work life balance. Mm-hmm. And uh, their chief corporate lawyer said something that, that was very disheartening to some people, but I think may make some sense in this context. He said, uh, I don't believe that there is a work-life balance. <laughs> he said, mm-hmm. uh, said, look, uh, I focus on being wholly in whatever I am doing. When, in it, when it's time to work, I focus on being wholly there and doing it. And when, I, when, I do, when I'm home, I, I leave the work at the office. Mm. Um, I, uh, I, I don't feel, um, like writing books does not drain me. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of, it invigorates me. I do creative things that don't end up in books. Um, sometimes I write music, but I'm also a gamer mm-hmm. and, uh, a tabletop role-playing games in my group. I, I'm the game master, even, even though, 
when we when we switched games just recently, I said, "Hey, if anyone else wants to be the game master, that I'm that's I'm fine with it." And no one took the bait. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I am doing creative work there, um, and I actually think that uh, I think that that uh, the more creative work I do, the more creativity is fostered. Mm. Um, so you think it all fuels each other. I think so. I think that, that I, I am a, I'm an introvert. So if I have to get out in front of people very much, that drains me. And, and being a corporate trainer means, um, eight hours a day, sometimes even more in front of people talking or, um, teaching a class over a platform like this. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And which I have to be very much on and funny and engaging and, you know, telling a joke I've told uh, 5,000 times as if I had not told it 5,000 times. Um, and that leaves me feeling drained. Mm. Um, but I think that's a function of me being somewhere kind of on the introverted side uh, of the spectrum. So, right. so, so I don't think there's a balance for me. I think I, think I try to be as creative as possible. I try to foster creativity in my kids, so there's creativity around me. My wife, one of the one of the great things that happened in the pro- course of me becoming a writer, is she said, uh, "Well, she never verbalized this because she's too kind, but clearly she recognized, hey, if Dave can do it, then anyone can." So I'm <laughs> so uh, she wrote a book, got her own agent. She's got a, a first book out and her second book out from a, a different random house imprint comes out in October. So it, mm. it's become in a, in a lot of ways, uh, our, our family has become kind of, uh, creative, uh, as a family business. My, my 15 year old daughter, uh, this spring started a business of, uh, making bespoke. It is customized quarantine gnomes. <laughs> <laughs> People would send her a photograph of themselves, uh, and uh, and she would do a picture. She'd make a gnome, like uh-huh. about eight inches high, out of Sculpey, um, but with quarantine paraphernalia. So uh-huh, like a mask, face masks, or holding hand sanitizer, uh-huh. right? Um, and uh, this is completely her idea. She it's charged, brilliant. Yeah, it was really good. She charged like thirty bucks. Uh, each, but she gave 15 bucks from each sale to a, to a homeless shelter. Mm. So really she was sort of making a few bucks on each one. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, uh, I, I, the more creativity is around me, the more creative I feel, uh, mm. the more, the more I'm doing creative things, the more I want to do more creative things. Nice. Um, it sounds like a virtuous circle. Yeah. yeah. Others may have a different experience, but that's, that's how it works for me in my life. Okay, I lied. I have one more question. Okay, then. So, if you weren't making money from the books you write, yeah, would you still be writing them? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I like that you thought about it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's easy to be glib. Um, it is a lot of work, so yeah. uh, you know the thought of making no money, but the, it is hard. But the truth is, 
Um, so I've heard a few different friends of mine who are writers say dismissive things about their own writing, just even recently in social media. You know, yeah. no one should care about the, the stuff I just pull out of my hat. I'm just making this up. It's just adventure stories. Right. Um, I'm not sure I believe them, but I know mm. for a fact that's not how I feel. Mm. Um, I... Uh, I have a point of view and I have things that I, that I want to say about um, the human experience and about goodness mm. and about, uh, about the pitfalls uh, we all face uh, and our weaknesses and the meaning of life. And uh, I care about what I write. Mm. Um, and uh I also want to write adventure stories. And so I write about those things embedded in stories about feisty Appalachian hexers who unexpectedly find themselves heir to the throne of an American empire or about clockwork boys whose fathers are kidnapped and they have to go rescue them. Hmm. Um, but I care, I, but I care enough about those things that I, that I think I would, uh, I would write them anyway. I, I don't know. It would be a very different looking career, right? And I might write less. Mm. Um, but I, uh, but I would still be writing. That's fantastic. Well, for people who want to learn more about you, Dave, how can they do so? Well, I'm very easy to find. Uh, unfortunately, Dave Butler is also a super common name, so I'm easy to find wrong. Um, <laughs> so, but my website is davidjohnbutler.com, which. Uh, is is Dave Butler writes uh, uh, davidbutler.com. I'm also on Facebook, Dave.butler.16. I'm pretty active. I try hard not to fight with anybody. <laughs> uh, and on Twitter, I'm at David John Butler. Okay. Great. Well, David, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Ethan, thank you very much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.